Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I will be your host for the next few minutes to talk about Peanuts, Charles Schultz, and all things Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy, and Snoopy too. So sit back and enjoy. Blockhead listeners, welcome to a new episode. Today we have the 70th anniversary of Peanuts special, <laughs> Blockhead special, if you will, featuring our wonderful friend Lex Fajardo from the Schultz studio. And wow, 70 years, that's really something to take in, isn't it? And uh, I'm reflecting a little bit on the impact Peanuts has had on me in the course of my lifetime. And when I really think about it, it's I'm not sure where I would be really without Peanuts uh, and its impact on my life as a cartoonist and an artist. I think that very early on, uh, I identified with those characters as so many of us do. Of course, some of us also pick up the mantle of cartooning from Charles Schultz and go on. And uh, so it had a big impact on me and of course, one of the wonderful things about Peanuts is how it impacts all ages. And when I first began to read, Peanuts was among the very first things that I read. And it, it, it made me laugh then, and it continues to make me laugh today. And uh, so I have an enormous amount of admiration for the achievement of Charles Schultz and a great deal of love for this wonderful comic strip. And I know you do, too. So today we have Lex Fajardo from the Schultz studio. And Lex, I consider Lex a close friend of the show and uh, a good friend of mine. Uh, It's great to have him here. We talk about Peanuts, uh, but honest to gosh, and that was our intention, really, was to talk about Peanuts for most of the show. But what happened was we got into a conversation about cartooning and comics in general, and that led to discussions about all kinds of things, as is wont to happen when Lex and I sit down around a microphone and have a discussion. Somehow or another, there's a connection, and partly maybe because we both come from the same area, I don't know, uh, here in upstate New York, home of the great cartoonist Johnny Hart, who was a friend of Charles Schultz's, and uh, a peer during the period of the 50s and the 60s, during that sea change in the comic strip, and comic strip history. Anyway, we grew up with that, and although we are of different generations, I think there's a you know, it's stretching it maybe to say that, but the, the, there is a connection. I love having him on the show, and not only for his connection to the Schultz studio, but just because he's he's a great guy to talk to. Great cartoonist in his own right. He's got a brand new Kickstarter up. It's You can find it at newkidbbook.com, which is at Kickstarter. Kickstarter goes till October 20th. It's his fourth book, The Tarpian Rock, which is the story of Kid Beowulf and Grendel and their encounter with Romulus and Remus. It is lighthearted comic adventure in the vein of, say, uh, Asterix, if you will. If you love Asterix or Bone uh, by Jeff Smith, those works, I think, are both touchstones for the work that Lex does in 
the Tarpian Rock and all of the Kid Beowulf series. So if you like that kind of lighthearted comic adventure, you're going to love Lex's work. You're going to love the Kid Beowulf series, and you'll love the Tarpian Rock. You can see a nice video, get an idea of what the story is about, just by heading over to the Kickstarter page at newkidbbook.com. And that's newkidbbook.com. So there's two Bs there, newkidbbook.com. Uh, and do whatever you can to support Lex's work and to support the work of a terrific cartoonist who is a friend of the show. And I've read the first chapter of it, and it is terrific. Uh, it's great for readers of all ages. So be sure to head over to newkidbbook.com. You can find out a lot more about Lex's work at kidbeowulf.com. That's kidbeowulf.com. K-I-D-B-E-O-W-U-L-F.com, uh, where Lex is has got all kinds of information about his work. He's got information about the Kickstarter and about the previous three books. But uh, really, Head on over to Kickstarter and give give what you can to Lex for Kid Beowulf and for the Tarpian Rock. You will not be disappointed. Great book. So we talk about that uh, in this discussion. We talk about a lot of things. Uh, we skirt around the topic of Charles Schultz in this first part of the interview, but in the second part we really get in uh, fairly deep into Schultz water, Schultz territory, so be looking forward to that. It will follow closely on the heels of this episode. I wanted to mention there's a discussion halfway through this episode about uh, Roy Lichtenstein and uh, the artist who whose work he based his paintings on, and I just want to make sure you know that I mention this. I made a uh, I mentioned Reed Crandall. I was thinking of Reed Crandall in regard to Lichtenstein's work. And yes, Lichtenstein did base some work on Reed Crandall, but I was really thinking of Russ Heath, and that's really the artist that uh, I wanted to make sure that I mentioned here so that you know what I'm referring to. And there are a whole host in terms of that Lichtenstein discussion. There's a whole troupe of cartoonists whose work Lichtenstein appropriated to make his paintings. Uh, Tony Abruzzo, John Romita, Mike Sikowski, uh, Russ Heath, many others who were among the source artists, if you will, for those those paintings. If you are interested in that discussion, you can learn more about Lichtenstein's work and the source material for that work at uh, Deconstructing Lichtenstein. Yeah, it used to be a website. It's If you look it up now online, it'll take you to a Flickr page, I believe, which will point you towards Facebook. And uh, it's by David Barcelo, who I believe is a visual artist, art historian. So uh, he did some remarkable work with that, uh, uncovering the original source material and crediting the appropriate comic artist, comic book artists who provided not willingly, but provided the images for Lichtenstein's paintings. And uh, we can talk more about that later on. But I wanted you to know uh, who I was really thinking of, although uh, Reed Crandall played a part in that too. But Russ Heath was really the guy at the center of my thinking. So Lex, Lex and myself uh, sitting down to talk. It's always a good time, and I hope you enjoy our discussion as much as I enjoyed it. Uh, so let's get right to it, okay? Lex Fajardo from the Schultz Studio, cartoonist of Kid Beowulf and Tarpeian Rock at newkidbbook.com. 
be sure to head over there and offer your support to Lex for his new book. Anyway, Lex and myself in conversation. Stuff at the end. It doesn't have to be about, um, you know, my stuff. I thought I should be more focused on on just the cartooning stuff we love. So. Um, well, yeah, sure. Well, here we are. <laughs> why, why don't I just do the, you know, just say hello, Lex. Welcome back to the show. <laughs> Thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's oh. been, um, it's been a little while. I was actually looking at my Instagram feed to 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 figure out because um, the last time we chatted, and it was I think June of last year when the world was in better shape. Yeah, man. So much has happened since last June. Isn't that something? To think about, I mean, it blows my mind. I, I the way I, I don't know. I guess everybody feels this way. I feel like I, we've all walked into an episode of the Twilight Zone, and yes. you know, in so and every norm that was in place, you know, from day to day life pre-COVID mm-hmm. to you know our politics to uh, everything, it all seems to have. I don't know. You know, there's this. All of the norms have been broken and all of a sudden, you know, we're barely holding on to the tenets of civilization, it seems like at this point. It, it's uh, And things yeah. are happening so quickly. I was just watching the news yesterday and they were talking about an event. I won't recall it because it was a horrible event that happened just short of a month ago. And it's already in the in the rearview mirror. And, and because so many things have happened since then that yeah. we've forgotten Um the impact of what that was and that our attention should, should sort of still be focused there as well as thousands of other things that happened prior to that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, keeping up with the news cycle, but keeping up with the rapidity of events lately is just, it's been so difficult. And I think what happens is in some sense you draw back, you know, even as, as much as we need to be engaged all the time, I think you also kind of can't keep up with everything. You just, it's like a tidal wave well, you know, or a tide coming in and out, it just washes over you and washes out again and washes over you with new stuff and out again. Right. And, and we just, you know, trying to keep up with it all is is a never ending task on top of, you know, everything else, every everything else everybody is trying to do. I know uh, for me, I've said this many times on the show now, I just keep complaining about it, but I'm not really complaining. It's just the reality uh, the move to online teaching has just been so overwhelming. Um, bet. It won't this be so bad. The work has tripled for you. Uh, it's it's like starting all over again. Even though classes are prepared previously, I used to be able to walk in and do a lecture and not think twice about it. You know, because the facts not facts so much, but the general ideas are in my head, and there's a spontaneity in the classroom. And all of that, and I've done it long enough that I don't necessarily need the notes. But when you start to go back to to recording, right, a PowerPoint, yep. putting it online, that's a whole different thing. And re- take after take after take, oh, I could say this a little <laughs> bit better, you know, yeah. I, I, I'm, my enthusiasm is lagging here or whatever, you know, it's like. Well, you and, have the audience to feed that enthusiasm for you to look to look at them and to know what they're responding to. That's out the window. Yeah. Exactly. And so it's like the workload is just uh, immense. It won't be so bad when it's all done, but it's still unbelievable. And I'm not, you know, the only person who's going through this. Obviously, so many people, everybody who's had to make the shift to doing distance something Mm -hmm. is is going through a big learning curve on top of, 
you know, additional work upon additional work. And, and I just think for me, I, I'm, I'm awash in stuff <laughs> and I keep look, my wife has said to me, you need to identify, you know, a moment where you cut off work and you cut off everything and you have some time just to, you know, be a human being and maybe read a book, but I haven't had the time, you know? Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely important. Um, and it's, you know, in this strange shelter in place COVID time that we've been in, I have uh, found solace um, or comfort in reading um, books about cartooning and cartoonists. And, uh-huh. and like for the last six months or so, I've just sort of been going through my library and all those books that I've collected that I haven't actually gotten around to reading. I'm like, okay, well, now's the time to read it. And uh Right now, I'm in the middle of a 900-page manga biography of Osama Tezuka, which is oh. which is amazing. Um, and prior to that, I read the um, Cartoon County by Cullen Murphy. Oh, I don't know if you yeah. Know that book. yeah. Oh, yeah. I, well, which is yeah, terrific. I, I just talked to Brian Walker. I'm, I'm sorry. I don't want to interrupt your train of thought. I just oh, no. throw in there. I just talked to Brian Walker. Uh, he was on the show a couple of times. And Brian was grew up with Cullen Murphy. And right, uh, yeah. so he was a big part of, you know, the back and forth on putting together memories or fact checking or whatever with Colin on that book. And uh, that's absolutely I loved that book. I just yeah. absolutely adored it. You know, I mean, it's a time gone by. It's filled with nostalgia and, and bittersweet melancholy. And yet it's also sounds like it was what a time it was, you know, to to misquote whoever that was who said that. Well, and that and that's the thing I think that I'm finding comfort comfort in in these books. Like, and then prior to that, I read Tom DeHaven's. Um, it's, yeah. it's historical fiction, but it's he did a trilogy about the American comics and you know when it began with the Hearst Papers and then the heyday in the in the well, I guess pre World War II years, and then um, it's called the Dugan trilogy, like Funny Papers. Uh, Derby Dugan's Depression Funnies and Dugan Underground. And it kind of, it's a, it really kind of walks you through 20th century American comics um, from a, from a literary kind of point of view, but it's great. But um, to your point about like a simpler time, it's, it, it really was at least the way it's portrayed in these books. And it just feels like, okay, I can wrap my brain around this. I know what this is. Mm-hmm. I know what they're referring to. Mm-hmm. I can just sort of uh, revel in the art and, and the, um, just the 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 talent that these guys had and the road the individual roads they went to towards success and and it's something I can just like understand <laughs> so yeah and it's helped yeah. it's really it's kind of helped well I I understand the reference points are all known you know you recognize them and so it's a world you navigate you know history is always like that we we know it we're looking in the rearview mirror so its impact on us is emotional intellectual but it's not in a sense uh you know dangerous in the way that you know life can be dangerous as it proceeds in front of you and i think one of the things that's happening now is you know all of the all of the reference points have been eradicated or are breaking down or whatever and we don't know what to expect every day as as every day passes by we don't know what's going to happen next and and there are a lot of i think concerns about what's going to happen in november and people feeling a lot of anxiety about whatever responses not so much the election itself although that's kind of scary but also the aftermath of the election Mm -hmm. when it happened yeah i feel like we're 
we're moving toward um, there's uh, well the the phrase that keeps popping to mind I think Tolkien coined it something it's called the eucatastrophe when when it's that moment in the story where everything is like uh, towards doom uh, you know the 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 cavalry is not coming the the you know Mount Doom is, is spurning as lava there's like there's no way out of the situation and all of those heroic moments are are crumbling and you're just waiting for that that burst through of of something like the the eagles that will come and save the day <laughs> like I feel like yeah. we're at the precipice of the eucatastrophe and that's what it, it's funny you mentioned Tolkien because I was thinking of that the other day too it's so much like that everything was going fine it's not that everything was going fine obviously not right, but there right. was a certain certain kind of continuity to life every day and, and a balance to it even we knew where all the like I said all the reference points were so we kind of even though things could have sucked over here and over here we knew at least where we were and I think right now what you're saying is so apropos of the situation, you know, it feels like we are headed towards that darkness and we don't know, you know, what portends and mm-hmm. we don't know how to get out of it. And yeah, either it's either the Eagles or, or somebody's going to break through the sky and come and save the day, or we've got to do it ourselves. And, you know, being the size of, Frodo and Bilbo myself. <laughs> that's a scary. That's heavy lifting, man. That's right, scary. Right. That's a scary. But path. I think I think it's I think it's, it's going to be the latter. It's got. It has to be us. Yeah, it has to be us. It does, and uh, one way or the other, and that's um, the the weight of it is on our shoulders collectively now. What we choose to do and uh, how we how we come out of this morass and um, whether we you know we live in darkness or we live in light you know and uh, mm-hmm. so it's yeah so looking at those books i find comfort in those books too and colin murphy's book in particular i found uh, just so um steeped in it, it, <laughs> i mean sounds um, for lack of a better word it was just steeped in wonderfulness you know i mean mm-hmm. uh, all of these characters who ran through the book, all these great cartoonists and the, the lives they led uh, together when cartooning was a living, you know, it was a, a real possible way to make a really good living. Right. And, and there's so many names of, of cartoonists that, um, I mean, I feel like I'm, I'm pretty well versed in, in history of cartooning, but so many guys I'd never even heard of and, and, and seeing that their, their work and how good it was. And, and, that's the other thing that struck me is that there's just a uh, a long parade of great artists that, um, unless captured in pages like this, are are lost. You know. Yeah. yeah. Um, absolutely. Or uh, absolutely right. Uh, it, you know, lost to history because we don't. You know, we accept things as they are now, and we don't like how many of us actually go back to the Billy Ireland Museum Library and go through their flat files of you know mm-hmm. newspapers and bill blackbeard's not here anymore with his big collection of comics but we do have the smithsonian collection of comics but that's out right. of print you know if you're lucky enough to have a copy of that uh that wonderful book uh that preserves some of them but not all of them those there were so many and um you know and comics pages were different from one town to another you know every town had a different comics page there were certain things that were always there but you know there were a lot of different things from different one city to a next and and so you don't know it's hard to put it all together uh, right 
Yeah. So among those cartoonists, the first one that comes to mind, of course, is John Colin Murphy. Mm-hmm. And John Colin Murphy had a great career before Prince Valiant, uh, working on that strip. Uh, what was it called? Big Ben Bolt, I think it was. Yes, it yeah, was yeah, a bo- about the boxer. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and he was a terrific illustrator. And it's funny, growing up, I, 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 these guys are like some of these people were people we just learned to take for granted because they were in the newspaper all the time. And, right. And and they weren't. A lot of the folks who followed up on strips, who picked up a strip after, you know, Hal Foster or after Alex Raymond or whatever, initially historians sort of gave them short shrift. Um, Austin Briggs or Macroboy were always looked at as not worthy of the mantle of Alex Raymond. And, you know, when you go back and look at their work, it's it's that's hardly the case at all. These guys were pros and they were really great pros. And just because they didn't have the opportunity to initiate the strip doesn't mean that the work they did was substandard, you know, right, uh, right. different conditions and, and whatnot. But uh, they were all great professionals who had great skills and great adaptability. And I don't, a lot of times I don't think we appreciate them enough. Well, that's actually the other thing that struck me reading the book. And I was talking to somebody about this the other day that um, in regards to, to Schultz, uh, and how he, among other cartoonists like, you know, Mort Walker and, and the, those who sort of were in the 50s, they kind of changed the look of cartooning and the design of cartooning yeah. for, to, to this kind of minimalist approach. And prior to that, it was it was the really beautifully rendered stuff you see from Kniff and Foster. But yeah. um, even those minimalist guys from that era, and you see it in this book, they knew how to draw. They knew how to illustrate. They could They could draw anything, which I think is um i don't know if that's as much the case with um uh, you know later generations and that they you know they see oh where there's a cartoon a cartoon character with two big eyes that's where i'll start with my two big eyes because all these other ones have big two you know two big eyes as opposed to like knowing the anatomy of something and, and those layers and how something's built up and and um and i and i speak for myself and that's something i'm always trying to to get better at but that's one of those things that the facility that these guys had as just straight up illustrators oh yeah impressive well you know they all went to uh, to school one way or the other uh foster went to art school uh, alex raymond went to school uh kniff studied at ohio state i think um Mm -hmm. more acting than anything else but he was in a studio with noel sickles and noel sickles taught him a lot and uh you know i think you're absolutely right this is one of the things that always I think it's a shame when I was going through art school, there was a, uh, and I think this is true ever since that period, that sort of shakeup period after abstract expressionism, when we moved in the sixties, there was this disavowal of craft and tradition, uh, in, and the fundamentals in making visual art. And there was an emphasis on the personal approach and, um, the, and expressiveness, and that came to a point where it and novelty as well. And all of those things came to a point where they sort of um, what's the word overtook and subordinated uh, the idea of craft and the idea of basic fundamental you know, drawing skills. And that over the years, over time, worked its way into, you know, cartooning as well. So that and that along with fan culture, you know, the idea mm-hmm. of fan culture growing up around 
cartoonists and, and comics artists and just not going to the source that they came from the well figure drawing and and basic you know skills and perspective and whatnot but just going like you were saying just to the comic source and deriving style off of that i i think we have you know since the 60s 50s 60s there has been this emphasis on the personality of the cartoonist the, the personal approach in uh in in regard to you know cartooning and to the uh dismay and as i said of uh disavowal rather of of all of those tools and the thing about it was is as you said you know they could all draw in a variety of different ways they had a lot of different skills and different skill sets that they could put to the task and uh and that's harder to come by today i think when one of the things is is that when you see younger artists as they grow older if they stay with it any length of time i think it demands of you the, the craft demands of you a certain level of skill if you're going to stick with it over time and you you just went into it you know with only rudimentary skill over time you're going to be in situations where you have to draw this that and the other thing and you really have to develop those skills somewhat. You may not have to become kniff, you know, but um, you do have to learn how to handle certain scenarios that you couldn't have been prepared for. So you have to go back and, and right. learn. You know? And like, I think, who, who was it? Well, so many, I think, different cartoonists have, and artists have said that, you know, you, you arrive at your style is the absence of what you can do. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, and I was just thinking about, you know, Kirby's unique wonky style is is um, you know you see try, folks try to emulate that, but it it never looks right. Similar to to Schultz in that it's it's so very much from their from their own person, but but it also comes from the fact of of what he studied before that got him to that, oh, and and his, his ability to to do that crazy foreshortening with the fist, um, and and it it doesn't. You know, nobody looks like that, but it looks perfect on the page. You know, the amount of power well, he's able to elicit. And Kirby, you know, Kirby drew. I mean, think about how many pages Kirby drew during his his apprenticeship, if you will. Right. Think about how many pages and how many hours and how much time he spent drawing uh, as he grew. And and his peak period is the 1960s. He was already in his 50s. You know, late 40s, early 50s by the time the 60s roll around. And so. You know, he's a mature artist. And this is true. This is interesting. Uh, an interesting confluence of ideas here. You know, Willem de Kooning didn't have his first show as a painter until he was like in his mid 40s in New York. And he'd been painting forever. All of those painters had been painting a lifetime before they got to a point where they broke through and had success. Those that first yeah. generation of abstract expressionists. And, the and same just to interject, I think Hal Foster was in his 40s when Prince Valiant started. Well, let's see. Uh golly the his date of birth you're right um it, it was in the 1890s maybe and it was 37 when uh when prince valiant uh, debuted he was 29 when he went back to um art school he bicycled a thousand miles to go oh, to I know. Chicago <laughs> crazy art story <laughs> unbelievable right yeah and, uh, i mean my god and before that he'd had a whole life you know, as a as a boxer and as a trapper and as a logger. And, you know, he did all kinds of things up in Winnipeg or, and and then found his way to school and became a commercial artist. And then, you know, I mean, my gosh. So there was a kind of 
I mean, maybe we think today there's not time for that, uh, that kind of study, but uh, it, it really is. When you think about where Kirby got to in, in the 50s and then 60s, he was in his maturity, full maturity by the time he was doing that, all of the stuff that became, you know, the foundation of Marvel Comics. And his language didn't start out as personal, you know, as it became. It became personal because he drew so much and he absorbed all of those lessons, you know, as a, a young artist and brought them to bear later in his life. Style is not something you can, you know, force. Some people, you know, are born with it and they just have it and it comes out. But then other people, it's it, most of us, it's hard, hard won. And Kirby was a mature artist by the time that happened. And, and I, I you know, Matisse was an older artist when, he did, you know, Picasso was a, uh, a prodigy, right? But mm. Matisse wasn't, you know, Matisse went through a prolonged period of study. You know, it's, it's, every artist goes their own way. Right? Right, but I think right. there's something to be said for this, you know, this, this idea that you can study your craft for a long time and, and, um, and then come to that point where you have a vocabulary that is distinct and your own. Right. Yeah, it is. It is actually being, you know, in my mid 40s, it's it's kind of a relief to hear that folks like Kirby and Hal Foster and, and some of these artists really started to, you know, their rockets really started to fire at around that age because because otherwise, I mean, you're just sort of with the Internet and, and whatnot and um, surrounded by these incredibly talented, very young artists. And you know, I always I always feel intimidated and daunted. It's like, oh, man. I couldn't draw like that when I was 20 mm-hmm. and, and to know that, that, you know, there's time and that, and that even these great artists, um, you know, some, you know, as you say, everybody, it, it, it clicks for them when it needs to click for them, um, mm-hmm. as an artist. And, and, um, so that's, that's, that's reassuring to know. <laughs> so. Well, you know, I'm impressed by, uh, I'm, as a teacher, I see a lot of students struggling. That's one thing I see. I rarely see that student who comes through who's amazing, but there are, you know, amazing people out there who have had, and I'm, you know, this, this is something I go through too. You know, Lex, I'm 60 years old and uh, I've been waiting my whole life to break through, you know, and with whatever it is I'm going to break through with, and it's never happened. And, and I always, and the thing that happens, what I'm, I'm getting to is not a pity story. What I'm getting to is that at this age, you look around you and you see a lot of people who are younger than you, who are, you know, who have, have skills or achievements that you've never had. And you kind of look and you, and you feel intimidated, you know, and mm-hmm. you feel kind of like um, you're running behind in the race, you know, and all of that, those kinds of feelings and I think, I, you know, I'm not alone in that. I think there are a lot of people who feel like that. And uh, and I'm all, I, and again, as you said, for all of the, the emphasis we, we were talking about on personality, there's still a lot of people who are really capable, really talented, uh, and, and whose graphic skills are just mind-freaking-boggling, you know? Right. And who handle on digital technology that I'll never have, you know? I mean, uh, so, it, it, but at the same time, you just you keep on keeping on, you know? Um, I cannot, and I don't know if this is true for you, either but success or no success i cannot stop what i'm doing my wife will tell you literally they will have to tie my hands behind my back you know and and i will have to have had you know some kind of terrible stroke or something to stop 
drawing, to stop cartooning, to stop doing what I'm doing. It's just, yeah. and, and it doesn't matter. All the other stuff really doesn't matter. What, what really matters is this is how I've spent my life. And it is, it has been what I wanted to do. And it, it is what, uh, for me, it's the most natural thing to do, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and from all of that, I've gotten this incredible, you know, richness of experience, which I don't, I don't think any of us say, oh, well, I've had a rich experience in my life and now I'm going to sit down and, you know, watch television. Um, that's not what happens. You just keep going on to the next thing, whether it's successful or not. Right. You, know, you right. just keep going on because that's who you are. And that's, that's part of your, your being. And so whether there's somebody out there who's got a skill that you want or I want or not, uh, who we admire, you know, um, and you may never get to their point. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. You know, it, it's great to admire somebody, but it's really wrong to compare yourself to somebody. You know? Oh, yes, absolutely. And that, but it's such it's such a hard trap or it's mm-hmm. an easy trap to fall into and a hard thing. Oh, to, my God. To remember. Yeah. Um, and you're right. I feel exactly the same way. It's just like I just love the art of cartooning and and uh, and like you are going to have to, you know, they're going to yeah. have to, you know, drag <laughs> me away from the from the board. Um, and and that's the other thing about all this material that I've been reading is that comes through. All these creators yeah. had this uh, yeah. drive and this desire yeah. for this art form and the storytelling of it. And they and they just um, it's who they were and what they wanted to do. And that's re- that's also that level of comfort, because that's what I identify with mm-hmm. in these crazy times. Um, and uh, yeah, so. My only criticism of Cartoon County would be, because um, I'm in the midst of rereading, uh, or actually reading, I should say, for the first time, Prince Valiant. Um, oh, God, chronologically, right. I have these those beautiful fanographics collections. Yes, yeah, me too. And I'm making my way through the second trilogy set. Um, mm-hmm. And I, they're just, I really wanted more of the craft and the transition between Foster and, and Murphy. And like just, he, you know, they, they touch on it a little bit in a, in a, in a chapter, but... Mm-hmm. I really wanted to nerd out and get all that process stuff. And, and um, so that'd be my only, and it's a minor criticism at that. Um, but I know what you mean, uh, because I, it, the transition is so incredible. But there's one thing in that book I had never seen anyplace else. And that was one of Foster's um, uh, panel layout sketches for Colin Murphy to work from. And I don't know when it was done in the process between the two, but it was as detailed as... Uh, uh, anything that Foster did on his own. It was unfriggin' believable. I couldn't believe Foster would, okay, he's retired now, but, and he's given it over to John Cullen Murphy, but he's going to provide John Cullen Murphy with this, these pages of sketches that are fully fleshed out and rendered in pencil. You right. know, the only thing he didn't do is ink it and they're smaller. And, and I was just like, I've never seen that before. And I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. You know, I wonder how many of those exist um, and how long he did it for. Right. Uh, Right. Because at one point, I'm sure, you know, he felt comfortable enough with John Cullen Murphy just to let him go on his own. I mean, Cullen Murphy was a pro, you know, and and but still you look at at those that that drawing that's in that book. You know what I'm referring to? Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking at it right now. It's it's it's, uh, it's great. I think it's from 78. 78 okay so he's so john colin murphy's been doing it for a little while now and uh i forget when he started exactly was it in the early 70s 72 73 somewhere in there Mm -hmm. and 
and you know it's a it's just mind blowing. Oh my God, how many of these exist? Right. <laughs> you know. Yeah, and that's great. How long did he do it for? And he died in '82, right? So. Oh, did he? Okay. Uh, yeah. It's it's yeah. I would have loved more than that too, but you know, uh, still, I agree. It was it's a minor criticism of the. Book. And the other thing that because I could well you go on for for days about Foster, but just one thing that I that I just recently finished the storyline. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I mean, his art is is astounding, but his writing is really really good, and yeah. and I think it's deceptive because it's not. It's more narrative. It's not you know yeah. there, never, there are no word balloons, um, and there's rarely rarely is there ever any direct dialogue um, in the in the panels. Um, but it's the sequence where uh, Alita is abducted by some um, Viking mm-hmm. uh, leader and his horde, and they and Val is is chasing him in his in his boat across the Atlantic all the way to the New World. Yeah. And and that sequence takes, boy, I don't know. It feels like forever, but it's 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 many many weeks uh, of of tracking this guy and going through and and of course Alita's beautifully rendered and and just as a as a character and how she sort of deals with the situation and then Val just trying to to get to her and and how it all culminates, which I think when you would have read it in the paper when it was being um, published would have been months. Of, yes. of watching this unfold yeah. the amount of uh you know val finally defeats the guy who's um taken his wife and he and he just falls into alita's arms and she's the one comforting him and it's just so beautiful mm-hmm. uh it's it's just marvelous to see how he how masterfully he just did that story and how and i, I was surprised at how, you know how wrecked i was for 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 val when he finally got there and it was just mm-hmm. it was so good it was just it's just every time i read his stuff's like oh my gosh he's so good hey listeners i hope you're enjoying the podcast i hope you're enjoying today's interview if you are and you want to show support head on over to my patreon page that's patreon.com slash jeff grogan at Patreon, you can contribute as little as a dollar on a regular basis to ensure the longevity of this podcast. Your support will help keep it not only commercial-free, but free to the listening public. And in exchange, you'll get some pretty neat stuff. There are at least three different tiers. Each level offers its own distinct rewards. So check it out today at patreon.com slash jeffgrogan, G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N. Any amount is welcome, and your support is greatly appreciated. Thanks again, and that's patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. You know, uh, it's interesting, Lex. The, the first generation of cartoon historians had a problem with Foster. And you, all, you, you they always say, this is the, the, the saying basically is, the caveat always is, Foster is a great illustrator, but... And then they go on to say something disparaging about the story or whatnot. And all I can think of is, is I I, I don't know what's behind that, but all I can think of is, you know, they hadn't really read the stuff collected Mm -hmm. or or something like that. Because I, one of the things that has knocked me out since I was, since the nostalgia press collections back in the early seventies, which were these books that were offered through the mail and before comic shops and all that. And, uh, and I got two volumes. I don't know how many were printed. Uh, that was my introduction to reading Foster and Raymond in collected form. 
And when you read them in collections, oh my gosh, those stories just flow, you know, and carry yeah. along. And the and one of the things that Foster's got that I don't think anybody else in except for Kniff really had was the depth of characterization in, in his stories. That these were romances, no doubt about it, and you know, chivalry and all of that. The, all of the trappings are there, but at the same time, the characters live and breathe. They were people. They weren't archetypes. And uh, Val is a person, you know, and he's a, a flawed hero and he, he gets injured, as you, as you point out. And Alita is not just, you know, the dutiful wife and matriarch. She is a, a partner with Val. Mm -hmm. They're equals in their uh, in their roles. And the two of them have this enduring love, which is really at the heart of the strip. And he I think he well. You know, there's a lot of the typical, uh, you know, mar married scenarios and some of the cliches of the period in regard to relationships between men and women. He transcends all of that because the reality is there's, there's just so much character, there's so much detail in, in over the course of, you know, however many years, 40, 50 years. Right, right. Uh, no, it's actually, it's very, I'm always impressed by how uh, fully formed alita is i mean she's she's just not the pretty face on the page she has she directs things she's she's um fully in command she's um for for writing that in what the the 40s i mean that's that's really surprising it is and and it points to you know foster's relationship with his wife must have been quite something and, and mm -hmm. uh he had a sensitivity for the nuances of married life and uh and, you know, I, I just think it, as you said, you know, for the time period, but I tend to think we simplify, you know, I, I, I mean, there are a lot of simplifications, you know, if we go back to the 20th century and male and female relationships, sure, there were these archetypes, but there were a lot of places where those lines blurred. Sure. Mm -hmm. A lot of, it's just never as simple as the caricatures, you know, that we develop over time to suit whatever point of view we're coming from. I just don't think it's that simple. And I don't think it was as, uh, you know, as it, it has its problems, no doubt about it. And there were a lot of serious issues, but at the same time, there were, there was nuance there and, mm -hmm. and see that in Foster's delineation of the married relationship between Val and Alita. Alita is a queen, you know, and um, she, that's never forgotten in the story. She has the bearing of a queen. She has the strength of it. She's also got, you know, this one of the, she handles power and she handles uh, groups of men like a queen would, you know, with right. authority. And she's been at certain times, not only, you know, the wife and, and the mother, which she is, and she's great at both of those, but she's also a tactician, you know, a military tactician at some one time or another. And, and, uh, you know, it's, it's a very, it's a very subtle, very nuanced, very detailed relationship. And it's really the heart of the story. And, uh, and it carries through boy. So the depth of what Foster did is really uh, unmatched, I think, in comics and in comics history. And, and it's a novel, you know, uh, that is so, it's like the war and peace of comics in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Although, well, so, know, so <laughs> with, with, so what's your estimation of the transition to John Cullen Murphy? I've not, I'm reading him chronologically, so it'll be a long time before I ever get there, but does, is it a smooth transition? Does, is the nuance still there? 
Oh yeah, uh, you know, and I haven't. I, I'll, I'll be frank. I haven't gotten to. I'm. Let's see. I'm on collection seventeen or eighteen. So I'm just at shy of John Colin Murphy. So I haven't gotten into the first stuff. But I read that as they came out. As a kid, I was reading uh, Prince Valiant in the paper, uh, and I read it through the early '80s, mid '80s, maybe before I kind of shied away from the comics page for a while. And uh, I, all I recall is the story was pretty much the same. You know, uh, mm-hmm. it carried on with Fa- as long as Foster was writing it. Um, when Colin Murphy took over, the, John Colin, John Colin Murphy's son took over. Um, you know, I don't recall the transition. I'll have to wait till I get that far in the books to know. But uh, right. you know, John Colin Murphy uh, penciling and inking uh, than Hal. Foster did and um it's a more i guess you could say it's a more painterly approach and uh a more improvisational approach you know you, you get the feeling that um there's a tightness to foster's pencils right yeah uh, and his inks uh and a solidity to them the forms are kind of closed forms and there's there's a mass and solidity to them and you can see that in john cullen murphy's approach there's a more painterly uh, approach with the brush, uh, a looser, more improvisational kind of feeling. And I think it's a matter of taste, you know, as to whether you like, you prefer one over the other. Um, I also think that, that reproduction in those years when John Colin Murphy took over, it started to, you know, the strip began to become constrained in terms of size. And so that set up a whole bunch of problems too, that were difficult to overcome. So, uh, you know, I think the heyday is doubt when Foster is completely in charge. Uh, but I think John Colin Murphy has a unique approach. that's all his own, uh, and, and has a great beauty to it as well. Uh, but I also think that there were some constraints placed on him that, that Hal Foster didn't have to deal with. Yeah. Know, yeah. The size on the page and all of that kind of stuff. Um, well, and even then, there's something uh, I think in the one of the volumes I just finished at the back, uh, Fanographics put in like a um, double page spread, enlarged leaflet of of what I think it was a color proof that the Foster would have done. Um, and looking at his inks on that, and then looking what was in the book, even then, there's a big difference and mm. um, some vitality lost from that original. Oh yeah. Even into the in, into the. Uh, the transfer, and actually, it's funny because that remind that that um, we've been going through this process at the at the Schultz Studio of um, of scanning in some of the super high res strips, and compared to what we've seen uh, published for the last fifty odd years, they're remarkably different. Not in really? terms of, of obviously the content, but just like the line um, it, it has become, you know, kind of blurred and 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 um, you know, through through the course of reproduction and and improper scanning and all this stuff, so so it's sort of like looking at it with fresh eyes. Um, yeah. And we only have sort of a a handful of these things, so we're we're kind of you know trying to 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 collect as many as we can. But it's been a, a project that we've been working on, and um, it really gives you another look when you can see the artist's work, you know, right there on the page. Oh, absolutely, and and. Uh... You know, Schultz always talked about the line, right, and being so – and it's surprising when you're – you know, one of the things uh, that 
again, I'm relying on my teaching experience, but one of the things that I think is always surprising to students is that idea that less is more, and then the idea that the, the more minimal your, your work, um, the more everything that is, that is there, only what's necessary, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever is necessary has to be at the highest level, right? It has to be, you know, really fine-tuned and because you you've got a limited number of of uh, of tools there for the viewer to see and so uh in schultz's work i mean as in anything else sure that's that's got to be true and and i wonder now when i'm thinking about it not so much the fanographics books but i think about the collections that i loved as a kid you know what were they using to make those faucet paperbacks you know or right right were, were they just they were just you know taking the the they would have been tear sheets you yeah. know or or the 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 stuff that the syndicate sent out you know they, they would send out those kind of hey this is what's coming this week in it and they you know maybe they cut and paste those together but yeah. um i don't know if they were using photostats I and mean, i don't know if you you remember no, those right. that uh cameras they were these big big things and those do a beautiful job i mean but you know they were expensive you know uh, right to do those but um those well even at the at the schultz museum something that they had um uh was um a couple of the plates they were they were not the metal but they were they were almost like uh tacky uh almost like silly plate, but it was a relief and it's, oh. it was everything was inverted and that's and uh-huh. that's what they printed with One and of so the i've seen plates yeah uh-huh. yeah yeah they're fascinating um things to, to see but looking at them and you know they're they're actually at print sizes and they would appear in the paper um but i mean I, that can't capture the line at all i mean but so so it makes perfect sense why he drew at the scale he drew because he knew that it was the that what was going to happen in the end result um but uh yeah so so, so in, to some degree it's like i've the strip I've been reading on my life have not actually been seeing with clear eyes. <laughs> so wow, it's really interesting. I, I, I and it makes me envious in a way that I, I want to see what this distinction is. I'm sure it's it's beautiful. Um, you know, it also goes to this thing that you can't tell what your work is going to look like in print until you you know you can't right, plan right. for it until you've seen it in print. You don't really know what to expect. And I was always, when I was a younger cartoonist, always thrown off and always dismayed by, you know, the transition from the original to the work in print. Usually it was reduced one way or the other. The lines become smudgy and blurry. You can't plan for that until you've seen it happen. Once you see it happen, then you've got to adjust accordingly, you know. Uh, and that that's kind of a, an interesting exchange um that doesn't really you know you don't really have to worry too much about when you're going from a digital image on your laptop to a digital image on online you know right right and that's shocking and then there's you know there's a whole you know mentality to some cartoonists and i think schultz would probably would have been in that camp that and i and and actually this is something that we we were talking about recently during a strip review is that on his originals he would sign oftentimes he would endorse some of the people or charities or, or gifts or whatnot and he would sign right over the artwork you know to such and such you know love sparky and it's like right across charlie brown or snoopy's face and every oh. time i look at those oh. i'm sort of astounded like wait wait a minute why would you do that and oh, God. 
And we were thinking about it, and it's kind of occurred to me, well, like, well, we're looking at it in the context of a, of a museum piece. We have this original. We can examine it. We can look at it now. But for Schultz, he that he was done with that strip. It was off to the paper. It was in the. It was in. You know, it was gone, and he was moving on to the next stuff. So he never really fetishized his old work. At least that's how I took that. You know, that the idea that he's going to scrawl across his original piece. To him, it was just a vehicle to get to the final piece, which was that in the paper. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, absolutely, I don't think he put any real stock in the original, except that it was a vehicle towards that towards reproduction and the reproduction reproduction was the thing um which is interesting that again points to a distinction between you know painting artists who are making objects and artists who are making work for reproduction which is really about making an image and making an image is a very different thing than making an object you know this always goes into it's off topic but it always reminds me of the discussion about roy lichtenstein and reed crandall you know reed crandall was doing an illustration for a comic book and that's uh, that's with the idea that this this original is going to be reproduced and the reproduction is the thing and once the reproduction is out there there are millions of them and because there are millions of them they become devalued you're Mm. and and uh but that's the business you're in you're in the business of making these images right um and then uh lichtenstein comes along and he takes that image which is again devalued because there are millions of these all over the place and he takes it and he turns it into this big object and the our experience of the big object and and the problem with the lichtenstein argument you know is is always been the people are talking about lichtenstein as though the reproduction of lichtenstein in a magazine or a book is the lichtenstein it's not and and that's not what Lichtenstein was about, and that's not what uh, his his painting is about. His painting is there in the museum. It's an object to be seen uh, and to be engaged with as an object on a wall in a room. You know, it's a it's a it's a an object. The image is something else entirely, and the image in books is merely uh, a, a an artifact, if you will you know, um, uh, of, of the original, it's a shadow of the original. It's not the original, the original is this other thing. And that is the thing that he was making. Uh, do you see the distinction uh, you mm-hmm. know, the, the distinction between the object, which is one thing and our experience of the object and art being about, you know, fine art, museum art, gallery art being about an object and making an object. So, you know, when Duchamp puts a, a urinal on a stand, you know, if we just see that as an image in a book and that's our only experience of it, then we're not really understanding what Duchamp is talking about. He's talking about this whole fetishization of objects in a gallery space and that tradition of doing that. Right. Right. Right? And, 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 and what we're doing when we make images in comic books, um, is that we're like Schultz, you know, we're making something that is meant for dissemination in, you know, mass media and reproduction is what it's all about. It's not about the original. And, you know, thus Marvel took all those originals and, you know, put them through the shredder or whatever in, in the early days of, of comics. And, and all of that, it's not to say that I wouldn't have liked, uh, you know, I think, I hope it's Reed Crandall that I'm talking about. Um, it, you know, I wouldn't have liked to have seen some money go his way. Absolutely. Sure. That would have been great if, if well, somebody. That's the other, that's the argument that you often hear in cartoonist circles um, uh, regarding the, the Liechtenstein 
um, pieces. But do you so do you think Lichtenstein was trying to elevate comic art, or he was, or is it just specifically yeah. that, as you describe it, that taking um, pulp and putting it into a different space? I think you know it's it is a totally different thing i don't think Lichtenstein gave uh, gave a hoot for you know comic art or elevating comic art i don't think it was about that i think he thought <clears throat> these were fun you know he went through a process of the same thing every other painter went through a pro in that period of time a process of going through this the the morbidity the seriousness of abstract expressionism and the weight of that right and he was coming out of the the mid to late 1950s along with warhol and Jasper Johns and Robert Rauschenberg. And this was a new media environment, you know, um, where the economy's booming. Post-World War II, there is a love of popular culture and there's the rise of mass media in the United States and it's impacting everything. The mass media then was different than it is now. And it's nowhere near on the scale it is now, but it's still, for it's, it's all relative, right? Mm-hmm. And so these guys are looking around them and they're seeing the world is now being um, determined by what is available in mass media. Our perceptions are all being colored by this stuff. And I don't know that they were thinking that either. I, I also think they were just thinking, hey, this was, this is great. What if we, you know, just make paintings of this stuff? And, um, you know, and, and what happens when we start taking these images from our everyday existence, Campbell's soup cans and, you know, Popeye and, and uh, Mickey Mouse and all that that Andy Warhol started to do. And, and what if we start playing with them along the lines of also Clement Greenberg's ideas of formalism, you know, that these are formalist uh, exercises and that it's about the, the painting and it's about the manipulation of form on the page. What if we, you know, poke fun at that by utilizing, you know, what are considered, you know, low art sources and so I think I don't think it was necessarily about elevating the comic strip. I don't think he really gave that much thought at all. I think what he thought about was the dialogue that was going on in art circles and in painting at the time. And so it was a completely separate engagement. And I don't think he thought about a person behind the comic book because nobody did in those days. I mean, you know, geeks like us did. And right. the professionals did. But you know, um, fan culture of the kind that we're talking about existed in very rudimentary forms. But, you know, other than that, that was a pretty small group of folks. And so nobody in the larger culture was talking about it very much. And and so I think appropriation, and, and appropriation is an interesting discussion, totally outside of all of this, but appropriation is an interesting discussion, you know, um, in general, you know, appropriation is really about using what's available to you as an artist and what the culture talks about and what the, the cultural engagement is and taking it and making commentary on it and utilizing it to make another statement, which is, again, what Lichtenstein is doing. And it's all about um, uh, dealing with the material that is material of your life. And so it's we're surrounded by this stuff. Our lives are controlled and sub, subsumed to, by media. And it's as an artist, it's perfectly natural to want to talk about that in your artwork and to comment on it and utilize it in your artwork because that's what we're surrounded by. You know, that's the dialogue mm-hmm. every freaking day. And 
So I think it's a natural discussion. So utilizing stuff, images, wherever they come from, makes a lot of sense. We've gotten into this idea that once you create something, you know, because money can be made, uh, I think we've given over to this idea that, you know, money can be made from something. Therefore, we need to sort of inhibit or draw borders around um, the kind of intellectual creative engagement that as artists we would naturally share in, you know. And because artists don't, generally speaking, artists don't believe in those kind of borders i make my stuff and put it out there and really so do you and whatever happens to it after the fact is one thing i'd love to make some money from it i'd love to to be able to print t-shirts and whatnot but you know okay great but if somebody's take it and borrow an image and put it in a comic book well you know what are they doing with it that's kind of interesting you know Mm -hmm. i did it to inspire somebody else to do something else because you and i we're all part of a long chain we're all part of it it's we're not isolated as artists and i think that's one of the things we do as a culture too we isolate we we segmentize and we isolate artists as individual entities and draw borders around them you know lex is this and jeff is this and and um charles schultz is this and reed crandall is that and and we all live in these little bubbles well we don't have time for to for the nuance of who we are as artists right And, and we're concerned and consumed with that too but the reality of art is, and I'm talk, when I talk art, I'm talking about, you know, I consider comics art and part of the larger dialogue of art. And so it's all, to me, any kind of creativity where you're making stuff, you know, right. is a kind of art form. So we're, we're making that not because we are, we are member, we are, we are not going to be here forever, right? You and I are not going to be here forever. We are here a certain length of time. We are not the be all and end all. We are only links in a chain. And as links in a chain, I am taking from Schultz and I am taking from Kirby and I am taking from Wally Wood and Harvey Kurtzman and Art Spiegelman and all those guys. And I'm filtering it into me. And why am I doing that? To take that and filter it and give it to somebody else, you know, because Mm -hmm. I am not the end of any beginning or the end of anything. I am part of a chain, a dialogue, a conversation among artists that has gone on forever. And that is the way. It is and should be, you know, um, do I think Lichtenstein could have sent, a, a, you know, a million dollars to Reed Crandall? Sure. But he probably he wouldn't have known where to start, you know, who to get it to. Um, you know, does that mean he has to pay off the publishing company, too? You know, because he utilized a comic book. Um, right. You know, where does where does that kind of thing end? You know, uh, it's not that I don't think he should should have there should be equity. Sure. You know, great if you can do that. But do I think that it should stop somebody from making something that could have uh, an impact on the culture and uh, and um, a validity and a and a, an important thing to say that could be useful to another artist somewhere else? Do I think he should he should be inhibited from saying that? No, I don't. Right. I think I think it it's necessary. It's part of the 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 tradition. It's what we do as artists. I, I, well, but but also you know the struggle of the artist, and I and I I feel this and see it all the time on online and and um, in those cartooning communities, and that that we we fall into this trap of uh you know the merit of what we do is only linked to the amount of money it makes and that mm-hmm. is so hard to to mm-hmm. fight against because that's just sort of how <laughs> i think maybe as humans maybe just as americans we are conditioned yeah. and uh you know you're only your stuff is only good as how, how many 
Patreon folks you've got or how many hits you get or how many likes this and that. And, and, you know, as you said earlier, it's sort of, we do this because we love the art form, but it's so hard to fight against that other insidious thing that comes in and, and tries to muddy that up. And I don't know how we, I don't know how you fight against that. Cause it's something I struggle with all the time. I, I, you know, uh, all I can point to is my own experience, but I think you're hitting on something that's very important. And I think we, um, we, we go through this process all the time where we compare ourselves to other people and we, we do, we are also conditioned to think of what we do and its value absolutely in terms of dollars and in terms of likes and in terms of followers and whatnot. And Lex, I have to tell you, if that was the only barometer that I used for judging my work and i and I, I fall in the same trap too i go through periods of immense depression okay immense depression about it because i've been my career's been shit you know i've never gotten a, i've never gotten anywhere with what i do and if i use that as a barometer to judge the quality of what i do man i would i would i would be you know cowering in a corner never drawing never, i would have given up thousands of years ago but I don't, and and the, the I just keep going, you know, like the freaking right. energizer, energizer buddy, because there is something at the core of me, and I think this is what we, you have to get to as an artist, where you value something at at the core of yourself that carries you through, you know, what the culture determines is failure and success, you know, and this is what I would say to any of my my students, any of my my, you know, I think of as my kids going out into the world because I don't have kids. Um, is is that you have to find something at the core of yourself that keeps you going. And you don't have to, like, for me, it's not something I, like, recognize. Well, at the core of myself, I've got this little, you know, vial of very important artistic stuff, you know, energy, art energy or whatever. It's it, it, That's BS, too. It just is. Do you know what I mean? It just is, and I let what is be, and and it continues. And... Um, you know, if I, and this is, I think this is true for all of us. You just gotta, you know, you also have to be able to say, Hey, they're wrong, you know, <laughs> and, right. and you know, there's value in what I do and there's, I've done stuff that is, I'm really proud of and I've done stuff that I think is shit too. And, um, and all of that is part of life, you know, but life is life as an experience is so much more than dollars and friggin' cents. Life as an experience is, you know, we've gotten away. We get away from that because we get into the trappings of the culture that define mm -hmm. what our experience is. And, and that's not right. Life as an experience is about breathing. It's about, you know, taking it in. It's about loving and, and it's about laughing and it's about eating, you know, and it's it's about survival. And it's it's about finding a place for yourself where you can have peace of mind and contemplate and appreciate just right. a miracle of being alive right um but it's it's it's, it's hyper challenging in in the last nine months yeah. all those things you've just described are the things that we that we you know take for granted but now i think you know the, the shelter in place and the staying at home and, and this and that i think i don't know i could speak for myself that your sort of a tunnel vision has almost been to the screen and so all those things that we've talked about that actually don't bring um joy or pleasure or um satisfaction those stupid likes and retweets and whatnot mm -hmm. um is what has our focus so so trying to tear oneself away from from that mm -hmm. when we can't go out 
is uh, mm-hmm. is is challenging. Sure, it's it's a drug, you know. And mm-hmm. I, I, I listen, I get caught up in it too, like I, we were just saying, you know. I, I can spout all I want to about all of this stuff, which I try never to get too far away from in my thinking. But sure, you know, when when I put up a post and I think, you know, I'm proud of this and, and you know, it gets three likes or something, you know, or I never get it, you know, I've never had any luck with social media getting followers and stuff. It just oh, does. Yeah. It's, you know, it doesn't work. No. And I mean, I'm serious about it. I, I other people have hundreds of followers. I have like, you know, however many I have, it's ridiculous. And and just it's not my I don't know. It's not my DNA. I don't know what it is. So, OK. But it's yeah, it's like, oh, God, look, you know, Lex got 40 likes on that post. And, you know, I got three. Oh, man, I suck. You know, I might as well throw in the towel now. Sure. I succumb to that, too. But then I've got another panel to draw for my comic book or whatever. And and I'm excited about that. So I forget about this other BS, you know, and I think that's just what we got to get to. And this goes into, you know, what we're facing as a culture, too. Yeah, there may come a time where somebody comes knocking on your door and says, you know, I'm sorry, but uh, you've got an anti-Trump comic on your page and you're arrested, you know, and, and that's when we're really seriously in friggin' trouble. But yeah. and, and other things kick in. But until then, you know, you've got to continue to get through this bad shit by focusing on what is really important in your life and to you, you know, and, uh, and yeah, we are online a lot and we are immersed in this all the time and, and it can be just so, you know, overwhelming, but we got to balance it, you know, and also cut it off and go back to work, you know? Right. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, make comics. Mm-hmm. Definitely. It's, you uh, know? uh, you got so, yeah. a role. Man, you, that's you, right. You, I don't just get you fired up and you can you can you can, you can go forever. It's great. <laughs> I, I mean, I feel like a freaking why. But, you know, there's some things that just really, you know, I don't know, push my buttons or, or matter to me in this whole issue, which is one I've been grappling with my whole life. You know, career did not work out the, the way I wanted it to. It took a lot of different turns. And my wife will tell you, I'll sit there and, and whine. You know, uh, periodically. Well, we all do, yeah, yeah. And and then, get, I, I you know then I go back to work, right? Right. Um, I, I and I forget about it because, you know, the problems are in making this panel work, you know, and those problems are are the problems that I'm capable of handling, and that I really want to handle, you know. Yeah, it it always makes me wonder. Like sometimes we have the conversation at the studio regarding you know, peanuts and Schultz is like, would, would it, it's a product of its time in, and I think a lot of its success, you know, you take, you take out the component that he was a great cartoonist, great writer. He, he knew what he was doing and he was really good at it, but there was also the elements of newspapers and distribution in that way. The, when the, when the TV specials, there were only three channels. So that gets you a lot of eyeballs, all these little, these other components that kind of helped, um, siphon peanuts to the populace, and and then they saw it for how great it was. In this world now, where you have a hundred different channels or thousands of different channels, and all these different social media streams, and all this and that, would um, peanuts be as groundbreaking and as successful as it as it was when it launched? I don't. Uh, and how would Schultz deal with the social media? Because you know he. 
he was a depressive too. <laughs> it's like, would he even would he even look in that direction? Would he even post there? It's just, it's it's interesting to 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 consider because you know we always look to him as as somebody who we want to emulate, and you just kind mm-hmm. of like, well, I wonder, like, what would that have been like for him? Well, I think you know, and that, that is an interesting discussion, obviously, uh, and I think. Any of us uh, who love Charles Schultz have turned over in our minds. And I, I absolutely love, you know, I think what Charles Schultz had is very similar in a lot of ways to Kirby and Lee and, and uh, to the Beatles and, and to, you know, George Harriman or whatever. It was right place, right time. And uh, critical mass, you know, as a teacher of mine used to say, there was a critical right. mass of all of these things coming together. You know, there absolutely was something to be said for being in the right place at the right time. Who could have known that when Charles Schultz drew this, you know, little folks and he put them in this little, you know, set of, of cartoons that he sent off to the Universal Press. And then he decided at the last minute to throw in a couple of horizontal strips, too. Who could have known that they were looking for something that was going to suit the shrinking comic size on the comics page? I mean, he couldn't have planned for that, and they couldn't have been, you know, they could have put out the feelers for that, but they couldn't have known that was going to come in the mail that day. And Mm -hmm. somebody picked up that submission, which, let's be honest, you know, it wasn't as beautiful as Dennis the Menace. It wasn't as beautiful as Hank Ketchum's drawings. It wasn't, you know... uh, uh, what anybody was necessarily looking for, but it came across somebody's desk who, who needed something like that right. to suit what they were trying to sell to the newspapers. And that little thing, they looked at it and they said, you know, I think the format, this horizontal format, and, and it's in rectangles and, you know, we could make that work. That could be small. And if you could have small comics, you can fit more on the page. Okay, call this guy up. You know, who right. they also when you know what is it they always say that it's ninety nine percent inspiration or what what is it one percent inspiration or I forget what it is but the formula oh, is perspiration that, versus inspiration is that yeah the, and you've got to be prepared you know you've got to be that person who is prepared when the opportunity comes to you right right and Charles Schultz was absolutely the guy to be prepared mm-hmm. uh, you know he was fanatical and passionate. And he loved what he did. This was his freaking dream. He wasn't going to let it get by. And, you know, and then it, and then they sensed that in him. And there was a good relationship. And, you know, it started off. And then, of course, boom, lightning strikes. You know, genius happens. Uh, but it's a, long, it's a long slog. That's the other thing I always like to remind people is that it, it took several years for it to really find its self like he was just you know it started in seven papers and then you know i think maybe was it a, a year or two later he got to he kind of had these benchmarks he had to hit but you know um it always it always well as you said before in terms of the, the history of things i think we have a tendency to conflate um the success of something it was it was it took a while um and then even then you know uh I always like to look at, at just how his stuff evolved from those early strips, and um, as he was as he was you know figuring out that cartooning muscle and what worked for it for his stuff, um, you know, it took us like almost ten years before we got to the Flying Ace. That's it's amazing to think about. <laughs> it's uh, it's unbelievable. Actually, it's longer than ten years, right? Because yeah. uh, Flying Ace came along in what sixty four, sixty five. 
And, um, you know, it, it was like six or seven years before Snoopy was on the doghouse. Mm-hmm. And I mean, all of that, plus the graphic skills, all of that stuff. Yeah. You know, Charles Schultz developed, as you just pointed out, right over uh, the, the 50s are really a period of, of great growth. The 50s into the 60s, but the 50s are really by 56 or 57. It's been seven years. He's finally got everything's clicking into place. Right. Right. It, it um, Snoopy's become Snoopy. The kids are there. Linus, Lucy, Schroeder, uh, the friends are there. The relationships have developed. So, by, but he's already run, won the Reuben in 55, which kind of surprises me mm-hmm. because 55. Okay. Some good stuff is going on in 55, but it's really 56, 57, 58. The ball really starts to take off, but maybe that right. Reuben gave him the confidence, you know, to really just explode. And yeah, yeah. You know, for the next 15 years from, you know, 55 to, to 70, I mean, the achievement of that period of time is just uh, it's mind boggling. But as you just pointed out, all of the, the you know, the groundwork is has been laid and um, everything's there for him to grow and become successful. And that and it's the same thing true for a lot of successful artists, you know, once they reach a certain point it's the fact that they've gotten there that they can develop even further and um without inhibition and show right and take the chances that that uh yeah. made people may have balked up before with anybody else you know yeah. uh, other artists may not have had that opportunity but you know you think about how different ketchum is um in his development you know uh ketchum pretty much was at a plateau right from the start never wavered really from it you right. know Never got worse or better. Pretty much stayed the same. There was a certain level of professional professional accomplishment, a certain graphic level of accomplishment. The scenarios and set, uh, everything was set when Dennis debuted, and pretty much, you know, uh, stayed the same. It has stayed yeah. the same throughout the the run. I of the see show. that a lot with, you know, when I look at the first issue of Jeff Smith's Bone, mm-hmm. it's all there. It's and yes. his, he's he's like Ketchum in that respect, like when he, he's right at the first issue of his of his comic book the style is set in it and it's um obviously it grows but it's sort of imperceptible in, in how it changes although at the same time he he did all kinds of work prior to that mm-hmm. as an animator and he that whole ten thousand drawing rule but in terms of publication it was sort of you see it right out of the gate and it's really um shocking that somebody could be so good so so immediately absolutely absolutely you know uh i i when i look at bone when i looked at i mean that was one of the things that was just so impressive about bone right it was fully cooked completely Mm -hmm. fully cooked and now you think about one of fellow travelers of that period of time i think of dave sim right uh, with cerebus and i don't know if you've read much cerebus um Mm -hmm. But, you know, you, you, Sim was Sim developed gradually over the course of a number of years, you know, became an exceptional craftsman. But um, but it took time and Cerebus, but also Cerebus, you know, set the groundwork for bone, you know, in a sense that it, it, the territory that Dave Sim was exploring, uh, I mean, economically as, a, as an right. independent cartoonist with his own self-published stuff in the late 70s. Uh, along with Wendy Penny and ElfQuest, um, you know, that was virgin territory, right? They were opening up and um, and they were setting the template, you know, for others to follow. So when Jeff Smith came along, maybe he'd he'd been I don't know too much about what he did before Bone, except for the animation. 
but he, he might have gone through fanzines and stuff like that so that when we He's, he had developed it first as a comic strip um oh. and it ran in the osu paper um oh. yeah so it, it, the story had been with him for for some time but time. it's um as you say it's sort of that the fully cooked by the time yeah. we see it as yeah. a comic book beautiful stuff and and bone is just a, such a monumental achievement um you know hard to follow but it's a uh, afterwards it's such a monumental thing but he doesn't really have to it's just so right so amazing and uh and wonderful you know kids love it and i loved it uh i think well the other thing i just i really respect about um jeff is like you know as we were saying earlier as a cartoonist he just oh god he's great keeps creating and he doesn't have to after bone but he's got stories to tell and 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 he's and he's willing to take those chances with something more mature like razzle or Mm -hmm. um you know the the tukey that he's doing and and um so that's always exciting to see where he goes next because it's not um it's it's fully where he where his muse is taking him um you know he he was also one of those guys his style was perfect for for that moment in the 90s mm-hmm. uh, you know it was perfect in the sense that the black and white his black and white was just so beautifully conceived and attuned you know everything's just he knew he just had a handle on you know how much detail to put in how much to leave out how much you know black and white how much contrast and it was a high contrast comic you know before it was right. a comic. and um and as a matter of fact, I've never read it in color. I read it in black and white. And I was just always just, oh, his black and white was just so, so great. You know, so, yeah. uh, really had a handle on it. He was a master, really a master. By the time Bone came out, he was completely in control of all of his skills. Yeah. Right. No, Dude. it's writer. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. The thing I'm always impressed by is um, I'm just looking at my Bone collections. And I say collections because, uh, whatever iteration he came out with i i gobbled it up and bought it even if i had the the original trade paperback i'm getting the new edition and it, like he's really good or he, i should say maybe, maybe vijaya his, his wife and business partner at like repackaging yes and, and reselling and that's just it's just a great business sense um because my bookshelf is is full of the same one book i keep reading over and over again so yeah, <laughs> yeah i mean i i think that's true he he uh i mean that's something to remember you know is that his company his independent self-publishing company you know was up and running and ran that uh product that you know property and has run it pretty much ever since and he did you know he and his wife did a great job of of uh of getting that off the ground and keeping it afloat and you know and as an in- independent cartoonist again somebody who is absolutely in the right place at the right time who knew how to handle mm-hmm. you know the the situation economically and aesthetically all at once and i think that was true of charles schultz it's true of anybody who comes to the fore uh they have all those skills somehow or they have the support system in place you know uh to enable all of that to happen um, you know, uh, uh, the other success story that I know really well is that of the Beatles. And I think the Beatles also had a support system, you know, that enabled them to be the Beatles. You know, they could just be Beatles all day. And then they had George Martin and they had Brian Epstein who may have screwed up 
a couple of contracts here and there, but for the most part, he looked after them and, and took care of them. And then he, they had their friends like Mel Evans and, and Neil Aspinall who were there watching their backs too. And, and that enabled them to be them, you know? Right. Um, and it, so I think that, you know, there's a lot of things that have to go into the mix for that kind of success. Have you um, read the fifth Beatle? that graphic novel no and i want to I, i've looked at it you know in barnes and noble and it's just one of those things i haven't picked up yet but it looked great have you read it yeah i can't, I can't recall when but it's 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 very well done mm-hmm. yeah and it and it, it's a great story you know really i mean that's one of the things that people always say about the beatles is it's a romance you know a, a romance the culture has had with these that those figures that is uh, one of the great love stories of the 20th century. I think it was Derek Taylor, one of their press guys who said that mm-hmm. at one point when the anthology came out. And uh, it, it's true in a, in a way. It is a romance. It is a King Arthur type of mythology. And uh, it's a great story, always has been. And um, so is the story of comics, you know, that we've been talking about. Um, there's a great arc to that. And, uh, uh, you were talking about Tom DeHaven. It made me think of Michael Chabon, mm. um, Cavalier and Clay. That one, yeah, it's a great book, and uh, that too took that mythology. And you know, I met him once at a, a dinner at the university I was at. It was like the only time a comic book person came along, and uh, somebody who had, had connections with him got him to come and speak. And so uh, we were talking comics very briefly, and. Um, we he somehow or another jules pfeiffer's book the great superheroes came up and as we were talking both of us pretty much said at the same time i always thought that would be a great movie you know and (laughs) then he went on to say and i did it you know i did made something out of it you know made a book out of that story and and it's true you know he did uh make this wonderful book out of the story that was there in jules pfeiffer's uh writing you know which i think is actually Unless I'm wrong, I think I read an article that they are turning Cavalier and Clay into a live-action television series or something. Oh, that'll be cool. Yeah, that could be good. The book's wonderful, though. You know. Oh yeah, it's it's one of my Des- Desert Island books. It's great. Yeah. yeah, I love that book. It was great. Just a, again, another romance, you know, mythology, uh, if you will. But he knew how to to pluck the strings. Of course, he's gone on to be a very good writer in other regards too. But uh, right. That's just a great book. Uh, you know, it, I mean, this this discussion uh, is is interesting. Um, it's so wide ranging in a lot of ways. But, um, you know, we always come back to what's at the heart of Peanuts uh, and what's at the heart of it. And the same thing is true for Bone. It's something that strikes a chord, you know, with the reader, uh, something that's universal and that kind of thing. There, there, there There's just like magic, you know, and mm-hmm. I do even that, that there's a kind of just a, a right place, right time, right individual, right group of individuals, whatever it is. Um, there's just a spark of magic that ignited, you know, in in uh, Schultz's work that became so it's with the magic there, with the miracle there is that something so personal could be so universal. Right. And and uh, because it is, as he said, you know, if you read my strip, you know me. And, and it really is personal, all these very personal foibles and ideas and, and, and concerns. And yet, through that very personal exploration of the psyche, right, uh, um, we get something that speaks to so many people. Well, let me ask you this. When- 
So I hope that last little bit wets your whistle for the next part in our discussion where we get into more Schultz material and talking about Peanuts and its impact on generations of, of readers and cartoonists. So look forward to that. It's coming very quickly. I, I really enjoyed this discussion so much. I can't wait to listen to the next part myself. So to get it ready for you guys. Uh, it, Lex is just such a great guest and really, uh, really interesting guy to talk to. So, uh, and that's, that, that makes for a good show. And uh, boy, 70 years have gone by. All I can say is thank you, Charles Schultz, and thank you, Schultz Studio and Schultz Museum for keeping peanuts out there in the world. Uh, not that I don't think it would last on its own by itself. I do. It's as any great work of art. Time is the true test, and Peanuts has lasted and will continue to last. Uh, Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy, Snoopy too. How can we ever forget them, right? Uh, they live in our hearts and our memories. And in book collections, be sure to read the comics. That's the thing, you know. It is October. It is time for the Halloween special and all those great animated works from Bill Melendez and his collaboration with Charles Schultz. But let's go back to the comics. That's the stuff. That is, that's the meat and potatoes of the Peanuts Empire. And it's where the heart is. So be sure, if you haven't read Peanuts lately in comics form, be sure to check out those fanographic collections or any of the millions of other collections of Charles Schultz's great masterwork. In any form, it's wonderful. I have uh, comics, I have collections that I had when I was a kid, you know, the first 10 years of my life as a cartoonist <laughs> I, that I still can reach out and, and that I've held on to forever and I've read at different points in my life and I can remember those points and they still resonate, you know, uh, Peanuts Treasury Editions that I got when I was a kid. Still can pull them down from my library and read those, and they're as rich today as they were then. It's interesting to think about the cartoonists who impacted me in those first 10 years of my life, you know, the first years of reading and whatnot. Uh, the ones who really hit me from those years were, and whose names I knew when I was that old, were Charles Schultz and Jack Kirby. And the other one was Kurt Swan. Uh, who we've not talked about on the show, but he also had a big impact on me uh, in those years. There's something about Swan's work. We'll talk about that again some other time. But uh, I think those formative years are very important. And Peanuts hits you, you know, in those first years, as do many comics. But uh, Jack Kirby's work at Marvel in the 60s also made an impact on me then. And probably a, host of, a whole pile of other cartoonists did too. But anyway... Right, think about that, you know, who are those cartoonists whose names you knew in the first, your first years of reading, who stuck with you, and, and who, did they have a lifelong impact on you, I wonder. Uh, Schultz certainly did on me, and so did Kirby. Anyway, food for thought, I will see you next time. Thank you again for listening to the show. I really do appreciate your support along the way, and I do hope that we provide you with entertainment and something to listen to while you're inking or doing the dishes, whatever. Uh, and uh, be sure to check out my work on Instagram, right, at Grogan Jeff, G-R-O-G-A-N. <laughs> 
<laughs> right? It's become a cliche now. I do it so often. G-R-O-G-A-N-G-E-O-F-F at Instagram. Uh, that's me there. And also on Patreon, my Patreon page, patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. It's the right way around that time. Jeff Grogan, G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N.com. And uh, yes, you can check out my work at jeffgrogan.com. There is a website, so you can do that too. I've also got my comics posting on Instagram, Spiking the Lens, at Spiking the Lens on Instagram, so you can follow me there too, okay? Before I let you go, I just want to mention today, the day I'm recording this, is my 34th wedding anniversary to my lovely wife, Debbie, without whose support uh, over these last decades, I would be absolutely nowhere. So I just want to say, honey, I love you and thank you and uh yeah let's make it another 34 next time lex fajardo part two be looking forward to it more schultz more peanuts 70th anniversary let's bake a cake or at least a pie and celebrate okay uh whatever way you see fit to celebrate the 70th anniversary of peanuts uh just do it and i will see you next time be safe be careful be healthy wear your mask social distance, all that stuff, and uh, and let's think about the election. Get out there and vote, right? Whether you're voting early or voting on, uh, November, what is it, November 3rd or 4th, just vote. And thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.